Welcome to Frankly Judaic, a podcast that explores cutting-edge Judaic studies research conducted at the University of Michigan. So chances are, if you're listening to this podcast, you know at least something about Yiddish literature. Maybe you've read in translation works by Sholem Aleichem, Isaac Besheva Singer, and other luminaries of the genre. At the very least, those names are probably familiar. The point is that whatever your level of engagement with Yiddish, when us non-experts think about Yiddish literature, we tend to think about the genre's most esteemed practitioners. But in the pre-World War II period, by far the most popular and widely read genre of Yiddish writing was the so-called Shundroman. Well, the word Shund means trash, and a Shundroman would be a trashy novel. This is Saul Zaret, an assistant professor of Yiddish literature at Harvard and a Frankel Fellow. He says that in the mid to late 19th century, there was a rise in Yiddish publishing, including big printing presses that wanted to maximize their profits. Usually those big printing presses are making money off of uh, Judaica, Bible, uh, Sidurim, various other kinds of, uh, of, of books that a Jewish home needs to have. But increasingly, these kinds of publishers are interested in reaching a mass readership in Yiddish that wants to consume things that are not as pious necessarily as would be the other books. And so you have a rise of what would be called sort of short novellas, pamphlets, even in Yiddish. We tend to think of this period as the time of the establishment of modern Yiddish literature, marked by the rise of Sholem Aleichem, Isaac Leib Peretz, Mendel Amoycha Sforim, and other literary writers. But the best-selling author of the period by far was a Shund writer with the pen name Shomer who was writing basically these sort of a bunch of longer novels in uh, sort of in serialized in pamphlet form, but also 30, 40 page novellas that were either based on plots, standard, standardized plots from European literatures, borrowed, Judaized, sometimes less Judaized, translated or adapted, uh, sometimes not. Uh, and, and these were selling like hotcakes. Shalom Aleichem especially, and other highbrow Yiddish writers and intellectuals hated Shund writing. But no matter how many times these sort of elite writers wrote screeds against this popular literature, literature they, they later dubbed as trash, it continued to be extraordinarily popular. By the late 19th century in the United States and the early 20th century in Europe, these popular works were regularly appearing in serialized form in Yiddish newspapers. They were essentially potboilers. With names like Die Blutige Freude, The Bloody Woman, or a Geheims Geschichte, a mystery story that would have, you know, various lovers and murders and intrigue of, of different kinds. The plots of these stories were often fantastically convoluted and melodramatic. Die Blutige Freu, the bloody woman, is a prime example. This woman who's had a lover named Dr. Blumenthal for a very long period of time uh, decides at a certain moment that she wants to kill off her husband and they go ahead and murder her husband uh, and then get married themselves afterwards. But unbeknownst to them, a couple of thieves had been hiding out in the villa where the murder took place, and they they witnessed the murder, so there are witnesses to the murder. There's intrigue around that. A couple of workers get framed for the murder, and their families suffer on, after they've been shot, sent off to Siberia. It gets very complicated, and certain members of different parts of these different groups happen to be secretly, of course, related to one another. So the point of the Shun novels was to keep readers intrigued and eager to know what happened next, which meant having to buy the next day's newspaper. So in other words, Shun novellas existed to sell papers. 
The newspaper in which Die Blutige Freu appeared made no bones about it. The publisher literally asked the paper's main funders what their wives were reading in Russian. And they happened to be reading a Russian translation of a French novel, and he got his hands on it and said to one of his editors, here, turn this into a serialized novel for us. The writing is purposely sensational and sort of lowbrow, but sometimes, Zeret says, tonier literary elements crept in. This guy who was writing it was actually a, a proper writer and would publish stories and various other things, uh, science writing and history writing and, and other formats that were meant to be, you know, a, of, of a regular or normalized literature. So there are times when he gets away from himself and he has these long passages, whether interior monologues or descriptions of nature or that are quite literary. But at the same time, you'd have to, by the end of the chapter that, that appeared each day, get to something juicy that would, in, you know, entice people to go on further. Alongside objecting to the lurid plots borrowed from European popular novels, Yiddish literary elites also attacked Shun novels as relying too heavily on what was known as Deutschmisch. So Deutschmisch means that a Yiddish that has more German into it, a sort of German-heavy Yiddish that would use words that you wouldn't necessarily associate with a normal Yiddish speaker on the street who might use more Jewishly inflected words, whereas the Schoenrenmad would employ more Deutschmann. It's more German, signaling its, att its attachment to a Germanic or a European literary genre. Highbrow Yiddish writers frowned upon this sort of foreign influence, but Schoen writers used those elements, in fact had to use them, in order for their readers to identify with the genre. And they also needed to skillfully move between Deutschmisch and other types of Yiddish registers. For example, in The Bloody Woman, the thieves talk in a sort of stylized criminal argot. When they speak, they speak, you know, Ganovimloschen, which is a very particular kind of slang that was very, you know, popular among Jewish thieves in Warsaw. So, you know, the writers are able to move actually between a lot of different registers in order to meet the needs of their, of their readers, who both want to read something that they identify as their language and be able to understand the characters as speaking in a Yiddish that is authentic in some way. But they also want to want to be coddled to in terms of the genre that they already recognize as Schund. They want to be able to recognize the literary motifs according to the vocabulary that they already know. Another reason that Sholem Aleichem and other critics of Shun novels lashed out at the genre, Zeret says, is because it threatened the sort of normative Yiddish culture they wanted to create. If the idea is to create a national entity that is self-contained, so it's a language of Jews and for Jews. It's, it's a kind of nationalist uh, desire for normalization for the Jewish people to be like any other people. But that means having its own vocabulary and not having to steal from others. This kind of myth of national authenticity that it comes, is part of the Western narrative, this idea of self-determination. And that if we want to make Jewish art, it can't have this sort of non-Jewish element. It, it can have non-Jewish elements if it wants to be modern, but that the Jewish element needs to be the determining factor. Which is why Sholem Aleichem and many of his contemporaries turned to the shtetl as a sort of quintessentially Jewish realm suffused with a purely Jewish ethos, even as they were fully aware that what they were doing was creating a myth of the shtetl, while actual shtetls were in decline as more and more Jews left for larger cities. So they themselves already are writing in this impossible space and want to thematize it, but want to in some ways still create a kind of Jewish vocabulary, even, even in this impossible space. 
But for the Schundreiter, this simply wasn't a concern. They had no compunction whatsoever about borrowing plots from European novels and writing in what the literary type saw as a sort of bastardized Yiddish. There's no national narrative that they have to answer to. They only have to answer to the newspaper and, and their sales. If you think about it cynically, it's about making money, but it also is reflecting what the readers want more than what Shalom is uh, necessarily doing. So there's something about them taking on this same kind of translational mode. So they're also trying to figure out how to be in between the shtetl and the city. But for them, it's not, it's not a dramatic, it's not a wound. It's just something you have to paste over with this mismatched set of vocabularies that, that are already existent for you in the Yiddish language. Which speaks to the broader scope of Zeret's interest in Shun novels. They're fascinating examples of what he sees as the fundamentally hybrid and polyglot nature of Yiddish. After all, one of the oldest names for Yiddish is Teich, which literally means German. So what does it mean to name your language with the name of, an, of, the, of a non-Jewish language? How, what does it mean to think about yourselves as, as owning a language, of a language being Jewish, but yet already being someone else's language at the same time? So Yiddish is famously a Germanic language. It's a fusion language, which mi- mixes a Germanic base with various different kinds of other vocabularies, most significantly Hebrew and Aramaic, but from other languages that the Jews who started speaking this language brought with them along their travels. And so it becomes this kind of fusion, not in the sense of any like neat synthesis between Jewish and non-Jewish vocabularies, but rather a kind of mixing, sometimes uncomfortably, between different modes of speech. Shun novels embody this mixing, and they're unabashed signaling to readers that these stories, while written in a Jewish language, are repurposing plots and characters and genres from other cultures. For example, in one story, two characters are investigating a murder. It's this lawyer and his friend, and, and they're super motivated. They, they're in love with some of the people that are suffering because of the murder. They're, you know, they're super motivated young men. They're, they're educated. One is a lawyer. The other one is a musician. And, and yet they're still having trouble. And one of the moments they say in the text, which is just an amazing moment, he's like, you know, if only we were Sherlock Holmes, if one of us were Sherlock Holmes, we could solve this murder much quicker. And for Zaret, that moment stands out as a sort of incredible nod to readers. I know you want to read Sherlock Holmes, Sherlock Holmes, which was popular in Yiddish literature, Hebrew literature, all the literatures around the world, you know, mo- very extraordinarily translated in the 19th and 20th century was the most important, some argue, one of the most important newspaper plot structures adapted and uh, changed throughout the world, especially in the Russian Empire and beyond. What the author is signaling is that I know this is what you, this is the genre you want, and this is the genre I'm trying to give you. I'm not sure I'm doing it exactly right, or if if, if everything is working out, but humor me and enjoy the mystery or enjoy, enjoy the same kind of things I'm trying, I'm trying to do the same things only what Nebuch, what do I have here? I've got these two Jews, <laughs> and I've got all these other kind of figures floating around, and I can't, I can't tie it up so neatly. Uh, it sort of has that kind of apologetic feel, but also a kind of uh, acknowledgement of of the translational act that we're all taking part in in reading this, in reading and writing this novel. Zirit's research matters for a few reasons. For one thing, scholars have paid relatively little attention to Shund writing, partly because until the advent of digitization, the newspapers in which Shund was published were hard to get a hold of. But also, Shund writing can be seen to play an important role in, for example, the development of American literature and popular culture. So we think about, you know, something like the arrival of Jews in the American mainstream in the post-war period, how much is Shund part of that story? 
Um, so we've been talking about Shun novels, but also, you know, night, starting in the ninth, late 19th century in the U.S. and New York is the Shun Theater, popular theater, which has a direct line to places like vaudeville and then the Borscht Belt and then right to Hollywood. And when we're thinking about the romance novel and its rise in the post-war period in America, and to this day, an extraordinarily popular genre, or its presence, say, in TV and serialized TV, Yiddish isn't the whole story, but as, as a model of cultural contact of a translational moment between various cultures, it is, it, I think it's a very important way to think about these things. That does it for this episode of Frankly Judaic, a production of the Jean and Samuel Frankel Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. The executive producer of Frankly Judaic is Jeffrey Weidlinger, the director of the Frankel Center. You can find the Frankly Judaic podcast anywhere you get podcasts on any podcast app. And we hope you'll leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Thanks for listening.